Before we start introducing our guest for this week, just wanted to give a bit of a message and say Happy New Year and just a huge thank you for sticking around and listening throughout the last year because we really appreciate you and really appreciate all the support we've had. So please, if you haven't already, do head over to our Instagram as well as our Patreon, Twitter and Facebook. Please do rate and leave a review if you're listening on Apple because it really helps us out a lot. Also remember to recommend us to someone if you think they might enjoy our conversations here. And most importantly, always please feel free to say hi if you have an idea or a comment or a suggestion. Get in touch with us either on Instagram or on email via thingsmusiciansdonttalkabout at gmail.com. So now we have the admin over with. Today we're coming with a fascinating conversation with Ingela Onstadt, who is a psychotherapist and a performance coach, as well as being a professional soprano. Both Rebecca and I have been really interested in getting to know a musician who is also trained as a psychotherapist, and we were really curious to understand how Ingela deals with boundaries in her job. So we explore all of this on this episode, asking for Ingela's insight into diversifying musician life, becoming more than just a singer, and also kind of adding to her career by helping people through this therapeutic lens. So without further ado, let's get on to this really awesome conversation we had with Ingela Onstadt. Hello everybody. Uh, today we are with the amazing Ingela Onstad. How are you today, Ingela? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast and thanks so much for getting in touch with us. How's everything with you? Whereabouts are you um, calling us from? I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the United States. So I am seven hours earlier than you, so I have a beautiful sunny day here in the morning. In terms of kind of you you and what you do day to day and all of that kind of thing, maybe start with, you know, telling us a bit about, about you and, and the work that you do at the moment and maybe, you know, how it, how it ties into to the conversation we're trying to have here as well. Sure. Um, Well, I originally reached out to you because I tend to always be looking for podcasts that uh, are about the performing arts and especially about mental health and the performing arts. So this just seemed like a perfect fit. What I do currently is I have a business called Courageous Artistry. And the goal of this business is to work with performing artists of all kinds, but I'm a musician myself. So I, I tend to have a lot of musicians on my roster to help them with all issues surrounding mental health and the arts. And I came to this via um, both a career uh, first as an opera singer. I lived in Germany for a decade. And then moving back to the States, I decided to pivot into psychotherapy. So then I was a psychotherapist for a while. Well, technically, I still am. I still am licensed, but I'm no longer practicing. And then it really struck me that I had so many friends and colleagues in the arts who would reach out to me, oftentimes rather last minute, to ask Uh, A question such as, oh my gosh, I have an audition tomorrow and I'm panicking. 
or I'm playing a concerto tomorrow and I'm panicking and I need your help, what should I do? And as it uh, it dawned on me that we don't really have any very specific services for mental health in the arts. I think perhaps a few training programs in the world um, to help people become maybe a performance anxiety specialist. But uh, in the United States, I'm not really actually aware of anything in particular. More likely you would do sports psychology, and then you might um, specialize in becoming a person who serves artists. But uh, I realized very quickly with the bounds of my therapy license that do not let me practice therapy outside my state boundaries. And obviously, New Mexico is just one of many states in the United States, um, that I was not able to do therapy with performing artists. New Mexico is a very large state geographically, but very small population-wise. And it turns out that I know most of the artists here anyway, so they might not want to be speaking to me about mm. <laughs> their most private struggles anyhow. So I, um, after some research, I realized that I could do a lot of a lot of very similar services. There are some major differences, but some very similar work. If I were to uh, call myself a coach, in order to do so as a therapist, I had to get an extra certification and I had to be approved by a board so that I was still protecting my therapy license. Um, you likely know this already, but just for your listeners who don't know this, um, anybody can call themselves a coach. You do not need any certification whatsoever to call yourself a coach. Now, this doesn't mean that people who don't have any certifications aren't possibly doing a good job, but it was very important to me that I not only protected my license, but that I also was um, helping my clients understand that I'm not in this role, I'm not acting as your therapist. That's a different role. But of course, I draw from a wealth of knowledge that is, uh, you know, empirically supported and uh, based in science and research, which is very important to me. I think some of the more maybe alternative or, as we often say here in the States, woo-woo practices can also be incredibly helpful for people. But I like to think I'm, I'm mainly science with a dash of woo <laughs> um, so, you know, I want to help people. I want to help encourage people in whatever way that they most relate to. But I know for myself, it was very empowering to understand how our biology and physiology impacts our mental health and then how that also impacts our mental health specifically in the career of performance, which is so high pressure and has so many challenges. And really, most often the comments I get from the clients I work with and is oftentimes something like this. Well, Ingela, I have had a therapist and it was very, very helpful in many ways. But wow, they really, really didn't understand my performing career. And it almost felt like I couldn't speak with them about that because the comments they would make about it were so far off base that I just stopped bringing it up anymore. So I think many performers end up in mental health therapy for various reasons, which is wonderful, right? If we, especially if we have some major mental health struggles, we need to get those treated and we need the support for those before we can maybe think about how to excel in our craft. Um, but, you know, then it comes to a certain point where maybe we have a therapist and maybe we've done some good work on our mental health, but we're still having all of these issues that are very performance specific. So I like to think that's where I come in. And it also happens that I, I work with other professionals just incidentally. I had a lot of other people in my life approaching me saying, well, I need help with public speaking. Could could you help me with that? And so I, I end up having some attorneys that I work with and other professionals in corporate scenarios. But artists are really where my heart is. We've noticed as much as 
yeah, we've come across a lot of mental health specialists tied into the arts in some way in the UK. There still seems to be a huge gap um, for performance-based help, essentially. Um, where where did your motivation come from? This must be the most basic question that you ask, you get asked all the time, but where did your motivation come from to help people in this way? Actually, I've, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question, so thank you for asking, <laughs> surprisingly. Um, <laughs> what? You know, I, I know what, right? It's a very good question. Um, as I'm sure both of you will fully understand and relate to, music was really the only thing for me for most of my life. I was very uh, single-mindedly focused on having a performance career, and I recognized that it was going to be a hard journey, and with a lot of luck and being in the right place at the right time and certain doors opening for me, as well as you know a bunch of perseverance and hard work, I was able to make my living as a professional singer for a period in my life, which had always been my goal. I thought when I was younger, if I could just make a full-time living at this for a while, I can consider this to be a total win. And so some things changed in my life in my early 30s, and I decided to leave Germany after having been there for 10 years. And I knew when I returned to the United States that my career would never look the same because obviously the system here is so different. You're a freelancer. You're not in a fest position in one of these coveted positions, you know, that um, much of Western Europe has. So I realized I didn't want to be a freelancer anymore. And I was really kind of at a loss. I didn't know what else I liked to do because my whole life had been about performing. And I had, you know, moved to Canada first for my studies and then moved to Germany. And I, you know, I'd made so many sacrifices and big steps in order to try to accomplish these goals that uh, I, I enrolled in a master's degree back at home because, um, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I believe that degrees are very, very valuable. But at the time, I wasn't thinking I really wanted to go into academia. But I thought, well, if I get a master's degree, it buys me two years of time <laughs> to figure out what my next step is. And if I want to go yeah. into academia, I will know after this master's degree. But I sort of viewed it as a, a soft landing for myself back in the States, reestablishing myself in this community and figuring out what I wanted to do next. I had always known that I was a person who other people came to, to um, you know, I, I was I was a, the confidant of many, many people in my life. And I had played that role ever since I could remember, and it was a very comfortable role for me. You know, I think every friend group or every, everybody knows that one person or multiple people in their lives where you're the person who people come to when they're in distress and you're good at listening and you're good at giving feedback or reflecting things to people. So that had always been something that I had done so naturally. And, you know, we, we oftentimes have these aspects of our personality. When something comes so naturally to us, we have a hard time recognizing it as a strength or recognizing it as something different or, a, you know, a different skill set than other people may have. So I very quickly thought, well, maybe I could become a therapist or a counselor um, and I had to look into that degree program. I, I didn't want to have to start all over with another bachelor's degree, but it turned out even with, you know, my, my degrees in music, I could get a master of arts degree in mental health counseling. And I volunteered at a crisis hotline for about two years, uh, just to see if that type of intensity of, of the work was okay for me, because it's one thing to, you know, talk with your girlfriends over coffee or a glass of wine about a crisis in their lives. It's another thing to be working with perfect strangers to be working with people who are um, severely 
um, challenged by their mental health issues, including being suicidal. Um, so, you know, I, I had to kind of test the waters at first, but I found I really enjoyed it. And even though it's hard work and uh, strenuous emotionally in many ways, um, turns out I'm, I'm pretty well suited for it. So I think my motivation was just how, how can I find another type of work outside of music that makes me feel equally fulfilled and equally passionate, something that doesn't feel like work. Something that, now don't get me wrong, we all have our days, right? But, you mm. know, something that feels like uh, even the hard parts of this work are things that I'm totally willing to do or to slog through. Sort of like the way I view practicing as a singer, right? I don't love to practice. Once I get practicing, oftentimes I do enjoy it. But I usually have to kind of give myself a, a kick in the behind to motivate myself to, to go into the practice room and get started for the day. I'm not just not one of these natural practicers. Um, so yeah, and, and I feel very fortunate, very lucky that this career suits me as well as it does and that I get to do this work that has a lot of meaning for me. In a mental health sense, um... You know, when you were um, an opera singer at, well, full time sort of in Germany and, and even now to a certain extent, are there elements to it that you say uh, impacted your mental health in any sort of way that you are happy sharing or, or, or talking about? Yes, definitely. I'm an open book, so feel free to ask whatever you would like. I will um, disclose that I have never had any major, major mental health struggles. So that is one thing that, you know, I have gone through periods of depression and anxiety in my life, and perhaps it would have been able to be clinically diagnosed at the time, but I wasn't even getting help for it at that time. I was just sort of putting my nose to the grindstone and figuring that it just meant I needed to work harder or I just needed to continue perfecting my technique and then I would feel confident or less anxious. And I think one of the greatest shames about our current state of education, and I, I do believe this even starts from a very early age, unless we have an extraordinarily gifted and aware teacher or teachers in our lives or mentors, I do believe we're sold a bit of a bill of goods stating that your artistic confidence and maybe even artistic prowess comes from being very technically proficient, as if those two things go hand in hand. If you're technically proficient, you will also be calm and confident and able to conquer every mountain laid in front of you. And I think oftentimes, especially the higher level you go in your training, um, the metaphor I often use is we don't feel very comfortable talking about our struggles, whether it's just sort of your everyday stage fright or it's lack of confidence, because it's a little bit like um, one drop of blood in the water in a pool of sharks is how we feel, I think, where if I let anybody know about this, um, I'm toast. It's over for me, right? If a, if a teacher or a mentor or a colleague knows how much I'm struggling, how much I doubt myself, how high my anxiety levels are, et cetera, then I will no longer be taken seriously as a professional. For me, my anxiety, I think at the time, probably all through my studies and all the way into my life in Germany, um, and even now, <laughs> uh, I, I, I notice it. Um, I have a Beethoven 9 this weekend, and the soprano solo in Beethoven 9 is just a bunch of screaming, and it's not very comfortable <laughs> for me, and it's very fatiguing, and it's not very much to sing, but it is incredibly hard for me, and so I, I just notice how much mental work and emotional work I have to do to be able to cope with these things. But um, I do have a, a sort of a couple blog posts that I wrote about this on my website. Um, I think at the time I wasn't even able to label it as anxiety 
because it was just sort of normal. I, you were standing so close to it, you can't even see it anymore. And I think for me, it really manifested in feeling like I was never, I wasn't good enough yet. I mean, and then that meant I wasn't ready yet. So it was always this kind of concept of I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not good enough yet. I passed up some really stunning opportunities that looking back, you know, we all try not to have regrets, but inevitably we always have a few in our lives. Um, I look back and think of how many opportunities I passed up believing that I wasn't ready yet. And really, who would have known if I was ready yet? Who was to decide that? But I just kept thinking I'm not good enough yet. And I think I held myself back in many ways. So, you know, if I took this to a regular psychologist or therapist, I'm not sure if they would classify that necessarily as some type of disorder. Um, but it really is truly a type of anxiety, a type of fear, uh, feelings of inadequacy, lack of confidence, etc. I would notice it a lot in colleagues as well. And, and perhaps this is just something that I'm generally sort of attuned to because of my own uh, personal makeup and, and personality characteristics. But I was always observing how anxiety especially manifested in other colleagues. So a classic example I, I give is I can think of a particular colleague who would always be so stunning in rehearsals. I mean, just singing the snot out of all of these roles and just really killing it. And then we would get to, you know, tech week and we would get to the Sitzprobe and the final dress rehearsals, the orchestra rehearsals. And little by little, this colleague, and I'm not even going to name a gender in case this person ever <laughs> listens to this, um, this colleague would dwindle. Uh, the closer we got to opening night, the worse this colleague would sing. And then this colleague would always be sick. Now, whether this was brought on just by their own fear or whether it was truly sick, but it, it happened just time, show after show after show after show, years and years of this. And after a while, you have to wonder, are you bringing this on yourself? Are you so anxious that you're making yourself sick? And then um, sure enough, opening night would come and either somebody would have to step in front of the curtain and say, so-and-so is indisposed tonight, but is choosing to sing anyways. Or they would have to call in a last minute replacement to fill in for opening night and for the first few performances. And this person would never, ever, ever sing as well as they did in rehearsals. And, you know, and this wasn't the only person. Obviously, you'd see this in a lot of different colleagues in a lot of different ways. But it was always fascinating to me just how comfortable we could feel in rehearsals. And then when it came time for performance or auditioning, there was there's no difference in our technique at that time. It's all about how the fear and anxiety is manifesting in our bodies and our, our minds and our emotions and then having an impact on us, of course, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. Would you say that um, anxiety is the biggest thing that you're, you help your clients with or are there other more major? I would say that, um, you know, the sort of the definition I like to give between coaching and therapy, and it's a little bit more complicated than this, but I think this sums it up in just a few bite-sized pieces. With therapy, oftentimes we are, um, we are functioning below our, let's call it midline, or I hate to use the word normal, but let's just call it for right now, quote unquote, normal levels when we're sort of below our baseline. And we're wondering why we're trying to figure it out. Now, when you come to therapy, oftentimes what happens is we delve into the past. What has gone on in your lifetime that has uh, impacted you, brought you to this point? Are there any types of traumas? Has there been any abuse? 
Um, are there mental health issues in our families? Uh, what does our family of origin look like? What do our relationships look like? What does our self-care, and by self-care, I don't mean bubble baths and face masks. I mean literal, how's our sleep? How's our um, nutrition? Are we moving our bodies? Do we uh, have good habits around uh, media, etc.? So oftentimes we're looking at sort of the foundational levels of the human, and we're trying to figure out uh, some, give them some insight into perhaps why they feel the way they do. Now, oftentimes this is also a matter of um, figuring out that um, this person has dealt pretty well with their challenges in life, but may have some chemical imbalances that are going on that they really need medical help with, at which point then we involve a physician. And if they're open and willing, then, you know, we're talking about medication in conjunction with therapy. But I often view therapy as a sort of um, past to present process. And I like to view coaching as a present to future process. Clients most often, I would say, do come to me because they are feeling anxious about specific areas of their performance life. If they were having overall very high anxiety in their lives, we might classify that as a generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and if they hadn't yet received help and treatment for that with a therapist or a psychologist or psychiatrist, I would likely urge them to do that first and then to come back to me. Because if a person is really, really functioning below their baseline, uh, me as a coach sitting here saying, okay, how can we focus on your goals in the future? That's just, it's going to be too much for them. It's just going to feel yucky and overwhelming. They're going to feel like they're failing um, when they're working with me. And so for the most part, it's clients are coming to me with uh, specific anxieties, or maybe I would call them specific um, ways in which they are stuck or holding themselves back. And right, depression can also manifest this way that we don't feel like we have the energy to do things, or we also um, feel too, too low or too lacking confidence in order to take positive steps forward in our lives. Um, but, you know, sometimes people will come to me and they're not performers and they will want um, just sort of more general life coaching things in which we just take an air, a look at all the areas of their life and figure out where would you like to see progress and improvement and how can I help support you in creating some accountability or maybe some structure, maybe being able to break large goals down into itty bitty baby steps so that we feel like we're making progress. Because I think no matter who who it is, I think every human relates to having a lot of goals and sometimes just feeling really overwhelmed with how to get anywhere with any of these goals. And then we just sort of whew, give up and sit down and say, I just, I can't do any of it because it all seems so massive. I don't even know where to begin. So outside eyes like mine can come in and take a look and say, oh, okay, how can we design just the, the smallest step for you so that you can move forward and feel like you're creating momentum? Would you say that um, having not all your eggs in one basket in singing has made has helped you enjoy singing more, has helped relieve the performance anxiety? Definitely. I think if I was dependent on this um, to pay every bill, I mean, this especially hit me like a ton of bricks when I uh, when we went through the pandemic. And uh, my husband is also a singer, but he is his his main full time job is a voice professor at the university here. So. We both just felt so fortunate that, um, you know, oftentimes I think we had looked at our friends and colleagues who are still uh, doing it full time and, and perhaps 
had feelings of, of jealousy and envy, like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could be jetting off to gigs and, you know, doing all this fun stuff. It looks so sparkly and fun from the outside. And then we, once the pandemic hit, we just were both so grateful that that was not the case and that we didn't have to both worry about all of our income drying up. We don't receive a lot of information or maybe, maybe the better way to say it is a lot of positive modeling from people in this profession who have multiple jobs um, that are all fulfilling to them. So, you know, I think oftentimes we feel like, well, I just have to pick up these little jobs here and there to pay the bills while I'm pursuing my craft. Those of us who are able to make some semblance of a career in it and pay enough of our bills to get by, are we are very, very fortunate. And, um, you know, it's it's been very fulfilling to me I hope I'm answering your question here, to have something that I find very fun and exciting that really challenges me. Uh, running a business is also no joke. It has a lot of ups and downs, a lot of challenges. Um, it is not, it's, it's, it's been a real challenge to me, but it's been a very exciting challenge and I wouldn't change a minute of it. And I kind of view my singing career the same way. It has had so much challenge and emotional ups and downs and strife and struggle and tears and anger and all of the things, but I wouldn't change it for the world. So, you know, I, 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 my wish for everyone is that they can find, if they're not able to make their living full-time at performing, that they can find something that they find fun and challenging to do that allows them enough flexibility that they can also do something. Yeah, it's so important for me to hear that from, from someone like you who does clearly have such a passion for both things and is like very comfortable in that I mean I don't know if that's how you always felt whether in the start you did feel like oh I'm giving too much to one thing I don't, you know the other thing's lacking or or I'm you know I'm worried that people aren't, don't think I'm taking singing as seriously or whatever sure but um I think the life that, that you lead you know for a lot of musicians who have many different skills it's it's realistic in, in a lot of ways and it's quite exciting you know to to have the thought of like it's possible to do both it can be really fulfilling to do both and also can relieve some financial pressure um as well i wondered because i even talking to a few people recently who have maybe doing other things on the side post pandemic even uh even um and they're like, I don't want to tell anybody that I'm doing this other stuff because they might take me less seriously. Mm -hmm. um, did you have any element of, I've got to keep one side of this on the down low mm -hmm. so that people take me more seriously? You know, I definitely still, even to this day, well, it's maybe been a while since I've had that struggle. But um, I think what it was for me is, you know, and every country is different too. So I think in the States, you are, there are less jobs for artists. And even, you know, while the UK perhaps doesn't have as many jobs as Germany and Austria, I think it still has um, more, more opportunities. But uh, at the same time, you also have a lot of highly talented people who are living there with whom you're competing against. Um, at the beginning when I first moved back here and went through this just huge change in my life of, of divorce and, and leaving the career that I had worked so hard to attain and, and you know, but doing this willingly and intentionally, um, kind of shifting my perspective and my priorities in my life, 
it was very important to me that I still can feel like a singer because, as I can say once again, in the pandemic, I barely sang at all. I didn't have any gigs, and it made me realize that some of the only reason I ever practice is because somebody's paying me to do so. <laughs> right? Is that wow? I didn't I didn't realize that ever since I had, yeah, ever since I was young. The only reason I was really practicing was either because I had to prepare for a lesson that I was paying for or because someone was paying me to, to do a gig and I, I better show up and do a good job. So <laughs> I realized I lacked very, um, I lacked any internal motivation. All of my motivation to practice was always very external. Yet it was good to have that realization and for me to ask the question, if the world never returns back to any semblance of performing, because I think we all had our death, doom, disaster moments in the pandemic, um, would I be able to be satisfied? You know, what? why do I sing? Would I just sing for myself? Would I be motivated enough to just sing duets at home with my husband just for the joy of it? And, you know, I still don't know all the answer to all of these questions, but um, yeah, there's something about being seen as a professional or being taken seriously as a professional that is understandably important to all of us. And I kind of, I guess, had to be very mm, aware and mindful about steps that I could take both uh, externally and internally to continue viewing myself as professional. Because if we're waiting for the outside world to give us their stamp of approval, we will wait forever. Um, and we will always build it up in our minds that so-and-so must not be approving of us and so-and-so is likely thinking this of us, right? We all get into these very vicious cycles of what we call in cognitive behavioral therapy, mind reading, where we're, we are literally pretending that we know what everybody's thinking and what they're saying about us. Uh, very dangerous, but we all do it. We also get into this, you know, projection into the future of this is how things are going to be. Sometimes we call that fortune telling, right? Oh, then it'll be like this and then it'll look like this and then this won't go my way, et cetera. So I think one of the gifts that I've learned through my years of uh, going to school for a, to be a therapist and then doing therapy and doing my own therapy, becoming a coach, is I'm very aware of my thought patterns now, much more aware than I used to be. I'm aware that our brains are just producing thoughts, you know, tens of thousands of thoughts per day, and most of them are a pile of you-know-what. They are just so much garbage because our brain is constantly trying to make meaning from our environment, but also our brain's um, have a predilection for negativity because it ensures our survival. So our brain is very much a sort of a negativity machine, always viewing the world through poo-colored glasses and never trying to, you know, it, we don't want to, we, we feel scared to feel hopeful or to feel positive because lest we be disappointed. And our brain is also great at going into power saving mode and shutting us down from taking steps and risks because our brain still thinks that we're living in, you know, times of feast and famine and that tomorrow might come famine and we need calories. Our brain takes 20% of our daily calories. So with that in mind, it really loves to prevent us from stretching ourselves too much or trying new things, but I, I feel like I'm kind of off on a tangent now. But back to your original question, for me, some important steps that I just took and I decided for myself were going to um, help me. I decided that whatever thing I was doing meant that I was a professional performer, no matter what the paycheck was, no matter what the organization was, because what a professional performer is is actually not a universal truth that exists that we can look up in some truth book somewhere. It is based <laughs> on someone's opinion. 
So we are here as highly trained musicians with degrees under our belt and all of this, all these hopes and aspirations. We are here believing that the whole world, and this is uh, you know one of these thought fallacies, uh, doesn't take us seriously as a professional musician because we had to get some type of day job. Meanwhile, my friends who are not performers still very much view me as a professional singer. And if they're introducing me to a friend of theirs, they will literally lead with, this is my friend Ingela, she's an opera singer. You know, <laughs> and then I feel like I have to give these qualifiers like, well, I'm not really singing full time anymore. And I can just kind of watch myself go into that explanation cycle. Meanwhile, the people we're talking with have no idea about any of this. And I could just say, yes, I am a professional singer, period. Right. Because Among I, I other view things. myself that way. <laughs> Amongst other things, right? If you want to uh, know, but maybe you don't. <laughs> exactly. That we could just say, yes, I am a professional. If we're not working on these things from the inside out, then no matter what level we are at or what we achieve, it will never be good enough because there's always going to be the next level or the first chair in this greater orchestra or whatever it is that we deem better than where we are. So for mm. me, it's a lot of just mental work that I do to believe that I'm still a professional, to take myself seriously first and foremost, to view the gigs I have no matter what the paycheck or what the you know, level of organization as serious gigs. I put them all on my website. Um, sometimes it helps me to look back at my resume and go, wow, I actually have done a lot of things because sometimes I forget that, you know, I, <laughs> I have some stuff under my belt. But I think there are a lot of practices, I guess, to sum all of this up. There are a lot of practices that we can do no matter what stage we are in our performance career. And it's you who decides whether you are a professional or not. And even if you don't have one paying gig right now, you can still decide that you are a professional. You're just a professional who is currently also pursuing other paths and goals. I have a, a question. Maybe it's not quite so relevant to your life now, um, but for when you were a practicing psychotherapist, mm -hmm. a lot about a lot of the importance of psychotherapy is about the client kind of having uh like their therapist having sort of anonymity and mm -hmm. them not knowing you know who exactly they are or or anything really to do with their life and it's very important for the boundary you know I probably yes, I think you true. probably know what's coming yes. um, but if you do have this career as well and you know that there are you know you have this great career as an opera singer they look up your name that's what they see Maybe even you enjoy writing about your life, your experience. Maybe, you know, you have an online presence in some way. You know, how did, did you find that boundary? And what's your opinion on that boundary? I, I'm, I'm really curious because even, you know, Rebecca is currently training, counselling training, and I've considered it myself. And it's like, that's the thing I worry about. It's like, I love being open online. I'm a musician. I've got all these, you know, recordings and stuff. What if my client, future clients will see all this? You know, what, what could that sure. mean? Sure. Well, this is, um, you know, this is an area where I'm sure many people will have very many different opinions. So I'll just tell you mine. Um, when I was practicing only as a psychotherapist, one of the things that I found most stifling about the profession and most challenging about the profession was exactly what you just mentioned. I felt like I couldn't bring my whole self into session. It was almost like I was putting on a therapist costume and then walking in the door. And I'm a relatively extroverted person. Um, 
I'm probably, you know, I read, I probably recharge alone, but I, I like people. I like being around people. I'm very much an open book about my life. I am not uh, shy or afraid to talk about personal things. Um, I like relating to people. I like uh, going deep on those emotional levels. Now, of course, as a therapist, it would be fully inappropriate if we turned everything around on ourselves and said, oh, well, let me tell you about this time that that similar thing happened to me. We would never want to do that. But I also know from being a client myself that sometimes you wonder who the therapist is as a person. And it has such professional distance and remove, oftentimes necessarily so, that it can feel, I think a lot of clients wonder about their therapists and also wonder, do they like me? Do they do they find me boring when I'm going on and on about my life? Do they understand? <laughs> do they really understand? You know, and as I mentioned before, a lot of my, um, you know, a lot of my clients will tell me, I'm so glad that you understand what my life looks like because I really truly feel seen and heard. So for me, exiting psychotherapy um, was a, a, you know, a risk that I took because this is a, I, I could have stayed, I could have made a very stable living as a psychotherapist, but I felt like I was cutting off one part of myself. And perhaps I could have worked on that, but according to traditional rules and training in psychotherapy, there are very good reasons why we should be more anonymous and why we should not make the session about ourselves. But I will tell you, it really hurt my heart oftentimes to, for example, when I left my um, agency where I had been working, I had clients who I had been seeing sometimes for four years on a weekly basis. That depth of relationship that you have with that person, for many of my clients, I think that was the deepest and most connected relationship that they had in their lives oftentimes in that point, just depending on who they were and where they came from. And then for me to leave and tell them I was leaving, I gave them months and months of notice, but to tell them I was leaving and to tell them legally, we can't have any contact now for two years. It just felt like such a punch in the gut, you know? And so there are a lot of issues and maybe I'm just more of a rebel or a rule breaker at heart, but I didn't like that. I didn't like that I couldn't be myself. And now I'm not going to be friends with these clients. But the great thing about coaching for me is that some of these people come to me because they've met me somewhere else and I can work with them. But if they, if they were a friend of a friend, they couldn't, I couldn't be their therapist. That'd be inappropriate. Mm. Um, it'd be what we call dual relationships. Um, it would just be inappropriate boundaries. You know, while I think it is, this is a fantastic and very noble profession and I'm glad that you are both, you know, either involved or considering it. Those are some of the challenges. And some people will feel more comfortable with that than others. But I think because I have this whole other aspect to my experience as a performer, especially, I wanted to go somewhere. I wanted to have a profession where I really felt like I could use all aspects of myself and, um, you know, share some of my personal experiences or some of my other clients' personal experiences without breaking confidentiality, um, you know, say, oh, well, I have a client who also struggles with something similar and let me tell you about something that helped them. While I want to keep my clients' issues and struggles front and center, I don't miss having to worry, did I just say too much? Did I just share too much? Or also worry, am I being too cold? Am I being too removed? Am I being too impersonal? So that, that is a constant line that therapists have to balance that can, I think is trickier for some than others. Mm. And you, you spoke at the beginning about 
um, there being, I, th I suppose the words that came to me was when you were talking about your friends contacting you before a performance and requiring a sort of mental health performer's first aid, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and for that sort of situation, if someone is looking for a kind of first aid thing in the moment of, of severe anxiety, what are your kind of, yeah. Quick, quick tips. Quick tips, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yes, and, and that's, that's probably the most common question that I get asked from people, which is perfectly valid to want to know because there are some quick things we can do. But I always also like to just underline again and again and again that these things take time and it's a process and it is building skills and tools. And when we are highly agitated and in high states of fight, flight, or fear, or fight, flight, or freeze, rather, um, our prefrontal cortex, uh, which is the most sort of human, aware, rational, uh, logical part of our brain, is losing blood flow. And our animal brain, our lizard brain, gains blood flow. So we have to be practicing these things when we are in a calmer state in order to remember to do them in the more agitated state. But I think the quickest tip I usually give for people, and this works really well for me too, um, I will use it when I am, literally this is when I am always doing it. I'm driving in my car to the gig <laughs> and I'm, I'm in my dress in the car or my dress is hanging in the back seat and I'm double checking to make sure I have my score and my black folder and did I put my high heels in the bag and did I, do I have my water and am I on time? And inevitably I notice my heart rate increasing and I'm driving and then I'm thinking as I'm driving, oh no, what if there's an accident? What if I get stuck in traffic? And my anxiety starts to ramp up even more. And I, I'm very aware of the way that that manifests in my body. And then here's what I'll do. I call this a hissing breath, but it's really sometimes referred to as a double exhale breath. I will take in a really easy inhale through my nose and then hiss or blow like I'm blowing through a straw out, effectively extending the length of my exhale so that it is at least twice as long as my inhale. The nice thing about the hissing or the blowing through a straw is that it dams back the exhale enough that you don't have to count. You just have to create a smaller aperture and then the breath leaves at a slower rate. Now by doing this, when we, for whatever reason, just because of the way we're built, when we do a longer exhale than inhale, that stimulates our vagus nerve, which I'm sure both of you are familiar with, which is responsible for getting us into uh, rest and digest or the calmer part of our nervous system, also known as the parasympathetic. So any type of vagus nerve exercise can be great, but just this simple breath. And I'll just do it again and again as I'm driving. And I will, I prefer to do the hiss because it's almost like it gives my brain enough of something to focus on. I hear it mm -hmm. and I'm sort of listening to the sound and it's like it helps take me out of that fear moment and just focus on something else. I have literally sat on stage before, you know, often, I think most often the types of gigs I do anymore I don't do very much opera. I do more concert work. So as the soprano soloist, I'm sitting there, as you both know, in front of the orchestra, oftentimes just sitting with my music in my lap, waiting for the soprano solo section or the trio or whatever it is that I'm about to do. And sometimes I will be sitting there for 30 minutes before anything happens. But I have to sit there and just look like I'm calm and pleasant and, you know, smiling at the audience and looking engaged when really everything in my body is telling me to run. <laughs> so I will sit there and, you know, I, I don't 
um, don't know if your listeners, anybody listening will get this, but I will smile at the audience as I normally do, just sort of a little pleasant smile on my face so that I'm not looking terrified. And I will do my hiss or my blowing out through the smallest, smallest little escape in my lips. <laughs> and I'm just looking at the audience, but I'm extending my exhale. And this will automatically drop our heart rate. Now, does it make us feel totally zen and relaxed and chill? No, because we're still in a, a high stress situation. But even just that moment of having this much control over our nervous system is very empowering and puts us back in the driver's seat of our experience. And I think an another part of the performing experience, I think, is quite often beforehand to have this huge anxiety. And in a lot of my experiences, if you're a perfectionist afterwards, there can be a feeling of depression if, say, it didn't go as well yes. as yeah. you'd wanted. Yes. And it only just struck me right now. I'm like, wow, like quite often we experience these two very intense emotions, like in one quite short mm -hmm. space of time. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you have anything for you, if you haven't performed well for you or, you mm -hmm. know, whatever. How do you get over that like absolute mm -hmm. depression, self-hatred, oh, wanting know, to so, just so erase <laughs> your life feeling of oh, having played me. badly yeah. or sang badly? Oh, believe me, I have had literal performances where I sat down after my solo and thought that was the worst thing I've ever done and I'm quitting singing tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I have been there. I have definitely been there. Um, so I, I wouldn't want anybody, because I know I've done this at times, to sort of berate themselves for being such a perfectionist or work on becoming less perfectionistic. I think we just need to work on becoming differently perfectionistic, perhaps. Our constant, it's our ability to constantly assess what needs improvement that allows us to be very, very high functioning peak performers at the top of our game, et cetera, kind of like Olympians. They're not going around going, wow, I'm just so good at everything. This is so amazing, right? They, they are done with their game, done with their match, whatever it is. And they look back and they say, what could I do better next time? So what I will say is pre-performance, I like to encourage people to set some intentions and not to set some intentions necessarily about how you want to perform or that tricky passage or that high note or whatever it is you're worried about, but to actually set intentions of how you would like to feel either emotionally or physically. So one that I often use, and especially, um, I hate it. Well, you know, we always say post-pandemic, obviously we're still not there. Let's say uh, <laughs> in the endemic stages of things is I, I want to really feel grateful to be there and to have the opportunity because there was a time that I didn't know if I would ever sing professionally again, right? So when I have a gig now, I try to feel, I try to remind myself to feel grateful. And I also want to feel present. I don't want it to sl slip by me so quickly that I walk off stage and go, whoa, what the heck just happened? I don't, I don't even know. I had an out-of-body experience. And I also want to, oftentimes I'll set an intention to feel engaged to feel like, to remind myself that I'm there to give the audience some brief respite from the troubles of their days. And not all of them will like me. Some will like me. Some will feel neutral about me. Some will dislike me. And if I can accept that, it helps me think I'm here for the people who, who need this right now. So it sort of, it helps put me out of my own perfectionistic tendencies and put me in the mode of what it is I'm actually here to do, which is to create beauty for people to take up, take part in, um, to be the vessel for this, you know, universal beauty that gets to flow through us as musicians. 
afterwards, and this is this takes some mental discipline, you walk off stage or you leave the pit or whatever it is that you're doing, and you train your brain to say, hmm, brain, what do we think went well tonight? Because I can guarantee you probably 95% of what you did was pretty darn good. And you are hyper-focusing on the 5 to 10% that you think didn't go well. And how often have you done something and thought it was terrible and thought that everybody heard it or saw it, and then somebody who you trust very much comes up to you afterwards and, and is like, what? I didn't even notice what you're talking about. So we, we hyper-focus and we overly magnify all of our perceived flaws and faults, and we don't look at any of the things that we've done well. So, you know, sometimes we can't get out of that depression, and that's fair too. Sometimes I exit stage and I just have to go cry for a while, or I have to go home and cry for a while and, you know, go, woe is me, I'm quitting tomorrow, and have my husband help talk me down. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but and that's okay too, right? We can feel our feelings and, and recover from it. But I would suggest that even then, at a certain point, you try to look back on it, really, I think in a way, like, like an Olympian would. Olympians don't get to where they're going because they cry on the couch about it. You know, they, at some point they have to say, okay, what went well here? What can I be proud of? What have I been improving on that did go well? And the things that didn't go well, what type of help or support do I need to get past that? And I think oftentimes for us, it's, I need more help and support. It's mm. not necessarily, it might sometimes be technical, obviously, but I'd say a lot of it is going to be mental. We, we just get so focused on the technical aspect of things. I think you're so right. I think that a lot of people will benefit from hearing what you've got to say. And um, yeah, if people do want to find you online, your blog, your website, all this kind of stuff, where can people find you? Yes, thank you for asking. I um, probably the easiest way to get in touch with me is through my website, which is just courageousartistry.com. Um, you can message me through there. If you join my email list, there should be a little box that pops up for you to join my list. Not only do you get a free download, which is a PDF guide to some anxiety, I call them anxiety busting routines, maybe I call them anxiety busting rituals, I can't remember, um, for pre-performance times to help you build a little toolkit. But then you'll also be on my mailing list and I do a lot of free webinars. I do a lot of guest appearances in lots of different places. So you know, I like to be very, very realistic. Not everybody can afford my private services. And I charge what I charge. Um, and I'm comfortable with what I charge. It takes some work to get there because you just want to help people. But I, I have to be able to charge for my services because no insurance is going to pay me for what I do. And I realize that then not everybody out there in the world, especially artists, can necessarily afford my services. But I do work really hard to provide a lot of free content, a lot of free material, free webinars, workshops. I do this year, I've been doing one monthly office hours appointment where people can just pop in and ask me questions. Um, and then otherwise, I'm on Instagram and Facebook um, and TikTok at Courageous Artistry. And I'm also on LinkedIn. A lot of musicians aren't on there, but you can find me on LinkedIn under um, Ingela Onstad. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, Thank and you. what we like, we've started asking our guests for some reason, unbeknownst to us. Have you, well, we'll start first so you have time to think, but have you had a little little win or something that you've been happy with this week? Because we tend to focus on our podcast, we tend to focus on like, not the negative stuff, but like very deep stuff. So Hattie, we'll, go, we'll start with you, spring it on you. Have you had a little 
win mm-hmm. this week because I also need to think about mine. Oh no. She always does this. She always... I can go I can actually go first if you'd like. <laughs> I knew I actually thought I bet you have a great really exciting thing to say. Well, because I'm very much in the mindset of helping my clients with this. So I can come up with wins very quickly because I, I work at focusing on them, right? Oh, yeah. You're well practiced <laughs> at it. That's, that's great. Okay. okay well, it. my win, win is um, I had a family emergency last week. My father had a surgery and things didn't go quite as planned. He's okay now, but uh, it turned into a totally different process than the one we had been expecting. I had to go to another city you know, get an Airbnb, visit the hospital all the time. And I, as I mentioned, have this Beethoven Ninth Symphony coming up this coming weekend. So my win is that I worked really hard mentally. I I wasn't practicing while I was helping take care of my father, right? But my win mentally is I both, I did a couple things. I checked in with a couple other sopranos to see if they were available to sing next weekend so that had I wanted to, I could have said, I can't do it. I need to bow out because of family emergency, but here are some other people. So I gave myself permission to take the pressure off and say, if I don't want to do this, somebody else can, and that's okay. But then I also sort of thought to myself, well, I've worked really hard on this and I want a chance to do it. So what can I do in the next, in the last few days and over the next week what is possible for me? And I did a lot of listening and visualizing with the piece. And I think that really helped me. And today I'm, I'm feeling fairly confident about it. I'm 95% sure that I'm not going to call in the other soprano and that I'm actually going to go through yeah. with it, even though, you know, I, I my whole uh, practice schedule, of course, got, got thrown off with it. So it's not, I'm not as prepared as I would like to be, but it is what it is. I hope you have fun. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I hope so too. I'm so glad your father's all right thank as you. well. That must have been really, yeah, really, really scary. It was stressful. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I have thought of yes. one. Go on. <laughs> so I, when was it? Was it yesterday? It must have been yesterday. I picked up my cello to practice um, which is not something I do super regularly at the moment, but when I do it, it's very much a spontaneous thing. And yesterday I picked it up and I started playing and it, it, it started because I wanted to like try and learn this like pop song. And then it turned into me just like getting my bow out and trying to play things that I used to play and stuff. And it was really, it was, you know, it was pretty bad. Like, I was not playing well. Like, I, I've lost a lot of, like, technical ability. I'm not anywhere near, like, the, the sort of great performer I was. And, I'm, you know, if I really had time to put back into it, I have faith that, you know, I could be. But it's not what I want at the moment. But it was the fact that I, I didn't feel depressed about that. I actually found it, like, really like light-hearted and quite funny which is was a fact an interesting emotion for me to like experience to do with my playing I was like it's actually really hilarious how how kind of terrible it is <laughs> but I actually I love that like I I'm really enjoying how funny I'm finding this because the cello now doesn't feel like oh if I'm not hugely up there I don't like that emotion of depression and like shame and stuff it's like actually not being up there can be quite hilarious experience. I love that. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) Thank you. No, I I really love that because it's that the, the torture that you would 
ordinarily feel over it is self-created, isn't it? So you just decided to yeah. change the channel. You just decided to think differently about it. And then you got to have a different emotional experience. Yeah, like a really lighthearted experience that I'd never had before having taken a break and played like shit. I love it. You know? So it was nice. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, it's your turn. Uh, I've been trying to decide which of my many wins this week. Um, <laughs> but I think my one comes from today. Um, my boyfriend got through to the second round of an audition uh, and uh, we had a good chat about it and I was really excited but I, you know because I'm going through auditions and stuff at the moment as well and it was quite a win for me to feel excited for him and not jealous and not guilty that I hadn't played and it was just like a nice like yeah like you really want this job and I'm really happy for you and there's actually no hint of I need to go practice now or something. And I was like, yeah, this is cool. Good for you. That's hard to That's do, so isn't cool. it? Yeah. And I think yeah. that really speaks to our scarcity mindset with things. We often feel like there's just not enough to go around. So if somebody else gets something, that means I don't have something. When yeah. really it's, it's, I think, better to try to view things as plentiful and abundant and if he mm. has an opportunity, that's wonderful. That means opportunities exist for me as well. Yeah, exactly. I don't even play the tuba, you know. I couldn't go for that job. <laughs> Why would I be jealous? <laughs> I know. I mean, my husband is a singer too, and uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a baritone, but I get jealous sometimes, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it looks like it's beer. Yeah, I lot. just got brought a beer. <laughs> I'm je now. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ingela, it's been like one of the greatest pleasures oh, to speak to you. you so and I have a whole page of just like things yeah. that I wrote down that you said. I just didn't want to forget. <laughs> no, thank you so, so pleasure. much. And thank you both for what you're doing yeah. out here in the world for all of your fellow performers. You're having very important conversations and they require a lot of vulnerability and openness on your part which I know is um, scary to do oftentimes but I think the more we do it the less scary it becomes and if somebody is judging us for our emotions or for our experiences uh, let that be their problem Woo! yeah that could be our tagline <laughs> there we go <laughs>